Good evening, Thursday night. Good morning, Sunday morning at home. If you've got your Bible, open with me to Philippians chapter 1 as we are in week 2 of a series where we are beginning to work through this semester now the book of Philippians, a book that is all about Christ-centeredness as we saw last week and looked at five marks of Christ-centeredness. It is a beautiful September day today, yes? Man, just a gorgeous day. I got to be outside for part of the day. It was fantastic. Uh, So I enjoyed that. But you know, winter's coming, yes. December is coming. The cold weather will come. But I tell you, here's one thing I look forward to about Christmas or about winter coming as Christmas comes. And uh, some of you may know, or many of you may know, my family's from Texas. So I still have family down in Texas in the Dallas area. And so we do Christmas Eve services here, uh, which, you know, let me invite you now. Come join us, Christmas Eve services. And after Christmas Eve services, I go home at the end of the night. And then my family, we wake up at about 3.30 in the morning. And we pile the kids in the car. It's strategic because they'll sleep for the first part of the trip. And we make the 20-hour drive down to Dallas. And so we spend some time down there. We spend about two weeks down there between Christmas and then into the beginning of the new year. We look forward to that every every year. It's a great time with my family uh, and my wife's family who just recently moved up here. So they're with us here now, but we used to join them down in Texas. But we get to see a lot of extended family. It's a blast. It's a lot of fun. And every year we've done this for the six years now that we've been down here, or up here, I should say. And uh, we've always enjoyed the tradition that we've kind of created. But I'll tell you, something funny has happened So the first four years that we were doing that, you know, we would do the whole thing of I get home late from Christmas Eve services, go straight to bed. We would make sure that we put the kids in bed early, uh, got them up, crack a dawn, you know, get them in the car. And the idea is we can get three hours of driving under our belt before the kids ever wake up and need anything. And it's awesome. Right. And so we're driving. Well, so, you know, they had these car seats. And for the first four years of this drive, Amanda and I would pack jam pillows next to them to try and give them kind of a way to sleep. And invariably what ends up happening, all the kids' heads end up going where? Straight down, like this. And it is just, anyone over 28 years old just goes, ouch. Right, it just looks awful, looks miserable. How can you sleep that way? And they would sleep for hours that way and I'm pretty convinced I'm I'm creating a permanent problem for my children. Until two years ago. Now it took, keep, mind you, it took us four years of doing it this way until we realized that the seats recline. And all we had to do was just go from here to here. And the kids' heads would stay back and they would sleep for an extra 45 minutes. It was amazing. We had no idea that a better option was available to us. Some of you are like, you were thinking already, you should have done that. Yeah, it took us four years to realize until finally one year my wife just said, hey Trent, you know what I just realized? We can just do this. And it's done. It was fantastic. We were settling for less than what we knew to be possible because we just didn't think about the possibility of a better way or of a better thing. As we come to Philippians chapter 1 tonight, Paul is going to argue something similar, not about car seats, all right? But what he is going to argue is that there's a better type of relationship available to you in Christ than perhaps you may have realized. Now, I mean that on, on two fronts. One I mean that those of you who are not in Christ, like you may be home today watching this and you're not in Christ Jesus, you've never made a decision to trust in him. And the scriptures are gonna argue that there's a type of friendship, a type of relationship that's available to you uh, with other people who would share your faith in Christ uh, were you to come to him that you are not currently experiencing, that it's deeper and richer and more profound and just really, really good. 
uh, not to insult the friendships you now have currently, but there's something about being in Christ, the scriptures are gonna argue, that Paul is gonna say, that just causes you to overflow with affection for one another. And the other way I mean that is this. I wonder how many of us, followers of Jesus, I wonder how many of us are settling for friendships with one another, for relating to one another in a way that is far less than what Christ invites us into. That there's a, a depth of relationship available to you. So that's what we're gonna talk about tonight. In Philippians chapter one, verses one through 11, Paul is overflowing with affection for this church, his friends. And I want to paint for you a picture. I want you to see that what Paul is talking about is really the kind of relationship that is forged by people who are in Christ. And in particular, those who have gospel ambitions in Christ together. Now, you remember last week, we talked about, if you were here, anybody here, and remember the five marks that we talked about of a Christ-centered life. We said this book is all about Christ-centeredness. And what does that look like? And we said that there are five themes that Paul's gonna keep returning to over and over again that mark the person who is centering their life around Christ. Not just sort of that Christ is on the, on the periphery of life, but that he's at the very center. And one of those marks is that it, when Christ is at the center of your life, there are these gospel ambitions that you have. And one of the things that we're gonna see is one of the benefits then of Christ-centeredness is that it creates gospel ambition. And gospel ambition creates deep friendship. It creates deep relationships like you've never had before. And so I really mean that, like I said, on two fronts, both for those of you who are not in Christ, but also those of you who are, and you know you are. But perhaps, as we look at the text tonight, you might see that you're settling for that forward position car seat version of a relationship rather than that reclined version wherein you don't, uh, you experience something far, far better. So let's look at Philippians chapter one together. And let's read these first 11 verses. They say this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. We've read now. Let me pray one more time and let's examine it together then. Let's look at it closely tonight. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is your word. You've established it. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. And we bow before you tonight by submitting ourselves to its teaching. We pray that you would give us understanding and insight 
We've sung to you. You are worthy of the praise that we've sung now. You are also worthy of our mind's great attention turned on to your word and onto you through the power of your spirit. You are worthy of us bending and grabbing and disciplining our minds now so that we might grapple with and understand your word. We pray that you would give us the kinds of relationships spoken about here. That we would say for one another, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That we would, through gospel partnership and gospel ambition, that we would root our relationships in the things that matter most and put away trivialities. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we said there's a better kind of relationship available to us, and it is a relationship that is found by building relationships on gospel priorities, by building relationships on gospel priorities. I want to show you three of them in this text tonight, three gospel priorities that Paul is going to say his relationship with the Philippian church is built on these, and it's what brings about the depth of the relationship that you see expressed here. Did you see how deep his affection is for the Philippian church? Did you see it? As you read, he's talking about yearning for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's talking about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's talking about thanking God for them and all his remembrance of them always in his prayers. It's a rich and deep relationship. So let's look then at three ways that we build relationships around gospel priorities. Let me give them to you now. You can jot them down if you want, and then we'll touch on each one. The first is that we build relationships around the shared mission of the gospel. That's the first. If you want gospel, if you want deep relationships with other believers, if you want, which are the mark of a Christ-centered life, if you want that then, you have to build those relationships around the shared mission of the gospel. That's number one. Number two is you have to build those relationships by celebrating where the gospel is changing one another's lives. You have to build those relationships by celebrating where the gospel is changing one another's lives. And then third, you have to build those relationships by praying gospel prayers for one another. By praying gospel prayers. So simple enough, right? Shared mission of the gospel, celebrating where the gospel is changing one another's lives, and then lastly, praying gospel prayers for one another. So let's take those one by one. We have gospel-oriented relationships, relationships that, are, that have gospel priorities, number one, by building those relationships around the shared mission of the gospel. Look again at verse 4 and 5 and then verse 7, because here's where we see this truth. In verse 4, Paul says, In every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I want to touch on that word in just a moment. But then look at what he says again in verse 7 when he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The first thing Paul gives thanks for when he says, Every time I remember you, I find myself giving thanks to God for you. Every time I remember you, I I give thanks to God for you. And the first thing I give thanks for is that you have been with me in this thing called the work of the gospel. You have been my partners. You have been participating with me in helping others know Jesus. Now let's be really clear for those of you friends who maybe don't know what the gospel is or you need a refresher, you need a reminder of what it is. The gospel is the good news that we, first off, the not good news is that we were separated from God by sin. 
by our rebellion against him, a perfect king. And we in our rebellion have said, I want to be my own king. I want to be in charge of my own life. And we have gone our own way, every single one of us. But the good news of the gospel is that God did something about that. He sent his son into the world to live as fully human and fully divine. So that through his death on the cross, the penalty for our sin would be paid. And then through his resurrection from the dead, he could guarantee us victory over death. And that he has reconciled us to God the Father. Where we were enemies of God, he has made us children of God. Somebody please say amen to that. That's what the gospel is. But that gospel is not just a message that we then take into our minds and believe that it happened historically. It's a message we take into our minds and into our hearts. And because we believe it absolutely is historical fact, we also then recognize that it changes everything. If God has become a human being, then nothing can ever be the same again. And if he has declared that in becoming human, he has done that to rescue us from a penalty that we could not pay ourselves, then nothing can ever be the same. It affects every part of life. There is no nuance of your life, no aspect, no corner, no little jot or tittle of your life that is not impacted by this thing we call the gospel. So when we talk about building relationships on gospel priorities, we're talking about one of the primary parts of life. Relationships are pretty central to life. Would you agree with that? They're pretty important, right? Mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, friends, children, right? All of it is, is really very much core to how we live and experience life, where we find joy in life and meaning and purpose. And so, of course, the gospel bears upon those things. Now, the first thing Paul gives thanks for when he talks about them is that you've been with me in extending the gospel to other people, this good news about what, what God has done through his son, Jesus. You've been participating with me. And here's the thing. I just said a moment ago, if God has become human, then nothing else can be the same. But the, what is also true about that is if God has become human, and then I have believed that, then there is nothing more binding, there's nothing that binds me to another person more than when we are both about the same mission, and that mission is God's mission. There's nothing that could bind you together more with another person than that. No amount of background, no amount of being from the same place, no amount of being from the same family, no amount of sort of um, interests that overlap and align, right? Whatever your interests are, you're a woodworker and you like to be with other woodworkers, that's awesome. That can't bind you together with someone the way the gospel can. You're someone who loves to read and you get into a book club. That's awesome too, but you know what? That book club and that love of reading can never bind you together with another person the way the gospel can. You love your coworkers and you enjoy your place of business and that's awesome. You, you're, you're bound to them because you share something that you do day in, day out. Your coworker status with them cannot bind you together with them the way the gospel can. There's a depth of relationship to be found in gospel partnership. Now, I love the word he uses here. The Greek word, when he says, because of your, your partnership in the gospel, uh, when he's looking at that in verse 5, that word is a word koinonia in the Greek. And uh, we even have a fellowship group named koinonia. And most of the time, when the scriptures translate that word koinonia, they translate it fellowship or friendship. And the idea that we've often come to understand when we think about that word is that koinonia or fellowship means being friends with other believers, right? I, I have a friendship. Uh, we, we talk. We enjoy one another. But I love the way the ESV and even the NIV too have translated this word as partnership because that's really what koinonia means. It doesn't just mean that we like each other and that we're friends and we hang out and we do some stuff together. 
Koinonia means we have become partners in an endeavor together. That's what koinonia really means. It's the fellowship experienced by practicing or going forward in some mission together. You might think of it this way. Two people start a business together and they are what? They're partners, right? And their livelihood depends on one another, right? I'm a boat maker and I decide I want to open up a boat making business and you are good at that too. And so we together go in. You've got a business mind and I'm the artisan that shapes the boat. And we go to do that together. And now your livelihood and my livelihood are what? Linked together. We're going to either sink, boat analogy, you like it? We're either going to sink or float together because we are partners in this endeavor. And that's what koinonia really means. It means to be partners in the most important endeavor that there is. Christian fellowship, koinonia, literally means we share a mission together and we are partners in that mission. You with me? So that's the first thing we see. He gives thanks for that. Now, when we share a common mission, I already said it binds us together. And I want to say this. Lots of people are bound together by it. Lots of people have common missions, right? I mean, not having nothing to do with religion or faith or God. Lots of people, you know, sports teams have a common mission to win, you know, whatever their trophy is at the end of the season. Uh, perhaps you're in a, a, a club at school and you have a, a common endeavor, a common mission. You're raising money through this club to do something. In your workplace, you have a common mission, right, where you're trying to uh, you know, accomplish something in your business, whether it's to sell something or make something or provide a service, whatever it may be. It's your common mission. Lots of common missions. But I want you to hear that none of those things, none of those things are able to bind you together with other people in the way that the gospel is because the gospel is God's mission. And if it's God's mission, then there's nothing, there's nothing that is one, more important, and two, has as much reach in our lives. It can reach into every part of our life because it is God's. So no mission can bind, bond us together like the mission of the gospel. Now, let me say, by word of explanation, what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we are bound together when we volunteer for the same part of the gospel mission, when we are crafted for the same part of the gospel mission uh, as someone else. So you might be called to disciple high school students. You might really feel like that's a calling in my life and I want to invest in the next generation. And so I, I'm intentional about doing that. Maybe you even volunteer in our youth ministry here and you lead a life group. If you do that, you're going to be bound together with others who are sharing that part of the gospel mission to introduce the truth of the gospel to another generation and to walk them through uh, the trials and tribulations of trying to navigate the teenage years and cling fast to Christ. You know that's a challenge, right? And so helping them navigate those, those years. You're going to be bound together with other folks who do that. But do you know that you're not just bound together with them? You're also bound together with anyone who maybe has a different part of the mission but is still on mission. So the way we're bound together is not because we have the exact same part of God's mission in spreading the gospel and taking it forward. We're simply bound together because we know what our part is and we do it. And I would tell you this, if you've ever like been to a neighborhood party and you've found someone, if you have a heart for the gospel going forward, and you know what your part in that mission is. I'm a teacher, I'm a leader, I'm an administrator, I'm a, I'm a behind-the-scenes server. You know, whatever your part in the gospel mission is, is you're taking it up. If you've ever bumped into someone and you didn't know you were going to bump into them, and they are serious about the mission of the gospel as well, it doesn't matter what the thing is that they do. You get 
huge joy out of just happening to bump into this party and now you're talking about what they do and you can't get enough questions out of your mouth because you're so fascinated by what God has equipped them to do and made them to do. And why are you fascinated by that? Because you're fascinated by the mission of the gospel and you love seeing how other people do it, not just how you do it. Gospel mission binds us together, whether our mission is whether it's one part or another. You know, think of it, think of it this way. Uh, at the end of the, so I, you know, if, you, if you're going to follow NFL football this year, at the end of the year, there will be one team, they will be the champions, they will win the what? The Super Bowl. All right, fantastic. Yeah, they will win the Super Bowl. And at the end of that, this, this team will have been on a mission the entire season to win the Super Bowl, and yet the offense and defense will have never been on the field at the, at the same time or been doing the same thing while they were in the pursuit of this mission. Right? The offense does one thing, the defense does another. The two are never on the field at the same exact time, and yet they're both pursuing the same mission, but in very different capacities. They do different things to get there. Right? So that's what this is like. Whatever your part of the mission is, it binds you to us because we become fixated on doing our gospel job. It captures our imagination and our creativity. Now here, let me just, before we move to number two, let me just say this. I hope you're catching the implication of what I'm saying. Here's the implication. Let me spell it out for you. The implication is in order to have the type of relationships that are available to us in Christ, you have to be about the mission of the gospel. You are forfeiting, you are forfeiting a depth of relationship if you're choosing to sit on the sidelines of gospel ministry, of gospel mission. If you're choosing to not spend your time and your energy and your talents in such a way that you're actually helping others know Christ, be introduced to this good news or grow in it. If you're choosing to sit on the sidelines, you're not just not participating, you're also forfeiting a depth of joy in your relationships with other people. Does that make sense? I don't want you to forfeit that. I want you to have it. It's one of the benefits of gospel ambition. It's one of the benefits of gospel uh, uh, of, of a Christ-centered life. So let's, let me ask this question, just, in, just by maybe litmus test. I was kind of litmus testing myself this week, thinking about this, even talking to my life group about it a little bit this week. And just thinking about this, how readily and naturally do my conversations turn to the ways that God is making the gospel go forward through my friends? In other words, I was asking myself the question, how often do we revolve our conversations around trivialities like football or you know, for me, it's sports a lot, right? How often am I more comfortable and more interested to talk about whatever happened in the sports world that day than I am to talk about how the gospel went forward through my friends that day? Or to wrestle with them about how it didn't and how they felt stunted or struggled or challenged. Where do my conversations, do my conversations lead to an understanding of how we share the mission of the gospel? I wonder if you'd ask that question of yourself too. So, Let's note, go to number two then. So if number one is that in order to build on gospel priorities, build relationships on gospel priorities, number one is we have to build them around the shared mission of the gospel. Then number two is we have to build them by celebrating where the gospel is changing one another's lives. We see this in verse six. So look with me again at the text. And verse six says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty popular verse. It's one that if you've read Philippians 4, it might have even jumped out at you uh, and you might have remembered it. I, I, I hear it from time to time get quoted. And of course, what we see here is a promise from Paul. He's saying, look, Philippians, here's one of the things I'm really thankful for. I'm thankful for your gospel partnership. That's number one. But then number two is, I'm so thankful that when I look at you, I know that the good work that God has started in you, all this, all this righteousness and goodness that I see God pouring into you, it's all gonna, it's, you're not gonna finish incomplete. He's gonna finish it. How encouraging is that? Is that good? Yeah, Paul takes the moment to know, and that's true of us as well, by the way, we can rest assured that God will not leave incomplete the work that he has begun in us. The work that has begun when the Spirit of God has taken up residence in us. He has begun a work of, of purging sin and giving us a new taste for things that are holy and right. He's done a work of helping us see and leave behind ways that are less than godly. He's, he's done a work of teaching us how to worship and to love. He's done all that, and he's going to finish that work at the day of Jesus Christ, the Scripture says here. And that is good news. And Paul gives thanks for it in their lives. He recognizes what, that God is doing good work in them, and he encourages them with his assurance that it is going to be completed. Now listen. This is the type of encouragement we're thinking of when we think about the fact that to build a relationship on gospel priorities, to build a relationship on gospel priorities means that we celebrate the work of God or the work of the gospel in one another's lives so that when we see the gospel taking root and then causing different types of choices or different patterns or different ways of thinking, that we celebrate that, that we point it out. And this is really simple. Let's not make it complex. But how often are we perhaps more critical of one another? Perhaps point out where things need to change. How often do we make note of the fact that when we see someone doing something that pleases and honors God, how often do we say, that pleases and honors God? Well done. I'm so encouraged by it. Shouldn't we be, shouldn't we be for one another? Uh, we all hope one day that when we are in the presence of God, we will hear what? Well done, good and faithful servant. How good would it be if we heard that from one another time and time again, when it was true, when we heard it from one another time and time again and didn't just assume that we'll wait to hear the Lord say it. Not that we speak for the Lord, but we can recognize when the fruit of righteousness is coming forward in a life, yes? We can recognize according to the word of God when somebody does something that pleases God and we can say, well done. That honors God, it glorifies him. Praise, it brings praise to him, and we love that. That's a good thing. Now, here's the thing. This is a unique encouragement that only Christians can offer to one another. And what I mean by that is, uh, I don't mean only Christians can encourage other Christians. I mean that the world is not going to offer this to us. The world is not interested in encouraging when it sees the gospel making headway in our lives. So if we don't do it for one another, no one else is gonna do it for us. I saw an article uh, recently or, or heard someone talk about an article in a French diplomatic paper that comes out about, I think it's a quarterly paper that they publish in France. And the whole point of the article, I think it came out this week, was about, hey, we need to be watching out for the rise of evangelicals around the globe. Like the number of evangelicals, that would be us, by the way, Bible-believing Christians. The number of evangelicals is rising rapidly all over the globe, particularly in the southern hemisphere and in the eastern hemisphere, rising rapidly. 
that's gonna have huge consequences because those evangelicals are people you gotta watch out for. They are dangerous. That was the implication of the, of the entire article, the entire paper. The world sees us as dangerous. And I kind of want to say, yeah, but maybe not in the way you think we're dangerous. Right? Dangerous in that we upend the power structures of the world. Dangerous in that we see a different way to see value in what is good. Perhaps dangerous because we won't stand by idly and call bad things good. And we won't call good things bad. So that, that paper just reminded me one more time, look, friends, you are not going to be encouraged for the growth of the gospel in your own heart and in your own life by anyone outside of a fellow believer. It's so necessary that we would be a people who build our relationships, not just around shared mission of the gospel, but also around encouraging one another as Paul does here when we see the gospel taking root. And perhaps even as I'm saying this, you think of a moment in life where somebody did this for you. Somebody spoke to you. Can you think of a time where this has happened for you? Someone spoke to you, great encouragement. I'll tell you a story uh, that for years I did not tell because I was so embarrassed by it. So when I was first in ministry, I just graduated from seminary. I was a youth pastor at a very small church in the Austin, Texas area. Someone called the church one day and said, I'd like to talk to a pastor and I'd like to receive a Bible. And they said, I'd like, this, I'd like someone to meet me at this mall in town. I said, I'll go, great. So I went and I talked to this, uh, this individual for several hours. And over the course of this conversation, he, for hours, kept, kept coming back to, we were talking about the gospel, we were talking about Jesus, I'd given him the Bible. And he kept, he kept objecting to believing in Jesus because he thought pastors were crooks, that we were only out for money, it's all we wanted. And so I... I started to kind of probably get defensive, right? By the way, in this story, like in all the rainbows of the hues of the colors of the story, don't look for a hue of wisdom on my part anywhere in this, okay? There is no wisdom to be found. And he, he, he really was playing me like a fiddle, but I didn't know it. This guy was a con artist. And so he was saying, pastors only want money, they only want money, they only want money. I kept saying, no, they don't, no, they don't, no, they don't. I really, all I want is for you to know the Lord. I just want you to know Jesus. And I kept going back to the gospel and he kept going back to money. I kept going back to the gospel. So the point where after about two to three hours of this and through a number of, of, of circumstances that I will not share with you because the story would last 25 minutes, he convinced me that what I should do is take essentially all the money I had saved, almost all the money I had, and give it to him and then have him meet me at another location to prove that I was, cared more about him knowing Jesus than I did about the money now, do you think I ever saw this individual again? Never saw him again. I handed almost all the money that I had in the world to him and watched him drive away. And I thought to myself, I am an idiot. So I was driving home after that. Here's, here's how this ties in. And again, foolishness. I don't recommend this course of action. Right? I'm driving home. I'm driving, back, I'm driving to the place where we said we were going to meet because he was going to, oh, I'm going to trust in Jesus now. I had a real misunderstanding of how people, what like actually means someone's interested in Jesus, right? I thought to myself, well, I'm driving to the place, I know he's not coming. Like in my heart of hearts, I know he's not coming. I was like, this guy just took pretty much all my money and he drove off. And I, I gave it to him. And the grace of God, he had a friend of mine call me, one of my closest friends who didn't live in the state with me, he lived far away. And he just happened to call. I hadn't talked to him in, in probably weeks. He called me. And 
for years, he was the only person that knew this story because I was so embarrassed to tell it. And I said, I'm, I'm such a fool. And I explained him the circumstances and the situation. And I told him what I'd done and, and what a dummy I was. And he just listened. And you know what he said? He said, Trent, I'm so glad you're my friend because you want people to know Jesus. He didn't say, yeah, you're right, you are a dummy. He didn't, you know, I mean, he didn't sort of go over the laundry list of how I could have made a better choice in that moment. He didn't correct me theologically and go, Trent, you know, you really, you were sort of had a, having a bad understanding of how people get saved there and what it means. You know, like you got manipulated because you let this guy sort of make you think something about your ability to convince him that was not true at all. You, he didn't go into any of that. And to this day, it's probably the most profound encouragement I've ever received in my entire life. That someone in a moment where I had just really done something dumb said, you know what I see in that? I see someone who loves Jesus and wants other people to know him, and I'm so thankful that you're my friend. And didn't make the, the evening great that night, but what it did was it, st- it, it struck me so deeply that someone saw the gospel at work in my heart and in my life. And it's made me want to do that for anyone. Anytime I see the gospel taking root in someone's heart, I want to do for them what was done for me. Even maybe when they've done something a little foolish. Um, Number three. Number three. Gospel priorities in our relationships means building them by praying gospel prayers. I love verses 9 through 11. I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. This is my challenge to you. My challenge to you this week, by way of application of this sermon, is challenge you to pray every day these verses over a different member of our church, a different different believer that you know that's a friend of yours, to pray this exact prayer, verses 9 through 11, for them. Because look at how great this prayer is. Let's read it again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Can I point out a couple things about that prayer that are so amazing? Number one, he's looking at the heart level of the Philippians. How often do we pray, and rightly so, because God says to bring our tiniest burdens to him. How often do we pray mostly for one another about our health, about a job status situation, about a test coming up in school, about a a, a situation as it relates to parenting, about a a dating relationship or a marriage issue. And all those things are good to bring to the Lord. Yes, yes, let's affirm that. All those things are good to bring to the Lord. But do you see what Paul is doing? He's not just praying about those specific things. He's getting at a higher level of prioritization in prayer. And he's saying, you know what? I really want to pray for you. All those things, yes, about the details of your life, but more than that, I want your heart to be full of love. And I want want the love that is in your heart and abounding in your heart and overflowing out of your heart, I want it to be a kind of love that isn't this just sort of emotionalism and compulsion towards people. I want it to be a love that is full of knowledge and discernment. In other words, a wise kind of love. 
the kind of love that is so nuanced that it knows just what to say and just what to do and, and just how to serve at just the right moment so that other people see, oh, that's love. That's what Christ's love is like being poured through that person, that it's so full of that kind of nuanced wisdom. And he says, I want, I, I'm praying that for you. Do you know why I'm praying that for you? So that you would be, so that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He says that, in other words, the fruit that comes from the righteousness that God has given us in Christ. There's a righteousness that you have received in Christ. And there's fruit that comes out of that. And he's saying, I, I want the fruit then, because your love is so full of wisdom and discernment, knowledge. I want that then to result in this fruit of righteousness overflowing out of your life. So he's praying for them that, that this fruit would just pour out of them, be more and more and more and grow and grow and grow, that they would be an orchard of fruit, not just a single tree of fruit, and that it would become increase, that it would increase in measure. And then the most crucial thing in the entire prayer is the end of verse 11, so that what? So that God would be glorified. How often do we pray, God, glorify your name in my brother and sister? I'm thinking about this person. You know what I want for them? I want you to be glorified. I want you to be exalted and lifted high. Do we move from God, help them with their day? Do we move from that to God, glorify your name? Fill them with the fruit of righteousness in a way that's overflowing. And God caused love to abound in their heart. Not just any kind of love, but the kind of love that is full of wisdom. That's what I want in them. By the way, so many of those other prayers, if God answers the first higher level prayer, guess what's gonna happen? All these other prayers are gonna end up being answered too because God's gonna be so poured out through them in wisdom and in knowledge and in love that they're gonna find that whatever the challenge they were facing at work was or whatever the challenge in the relationship was, that you were praying over as they abound in love that's, that's wise. Do you think some marital problems might get solved? Do you think some relationship challenges might get dealt with? Do you think some challenges at work might be navigated really well? I love this. What a reminder to pray these kinds of prayers for one another. And I think that when you pray these kinds of prayers for one another, can you see that what you're doing is connecting to one another's hearts? It's one thing to get a list of prayer requests and to go through them uh, you know, dutifully, and that's good. We do that every week at the church. You put prayers, if you send in your prayers to the church, our staff prays over those. That's awesome. But better than that is when we connect our heart to those prayers and when we connect to your heart. So we don't just pray for you whatever you send us. We do pray that. But we pray for you too, these kinds of prayers. God, sanctify them. God, glorify your name through them. God, don't just, don't just fix this problem, but go deep into their heart. Cause them to abound in love. These are the kinds of prayers that bind you together. Now, those are just three things that, that we see here in this text, right? Just three things that we see here in this text about building relationships around gospel priorities. I hope that you find them helpful. I hope that you find them challenging. And I hope that you might examine whether or not there's a deeper kind of relationship that you need to take hold of within our body. I would love to see relationships like this abounding in our body. It's one of the compelling reasons to live a Christ-centered life is the type of depth of relationship that can come from it. And let me just say, if you don't find yourself compelled by that, I just want to, let me just put this forward as a challenge. It was kind of a bug in my brain as I was preparing this week. I found myself wondering, I was like, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and preach to this what your text says, what your word says here about this 
the depth of relationship. But it kind of occurred to me that it's possible that some of you might hear this and go, yeah, but I don't want that kind of depth of relationship. Like I'm, I'm satisfied with something, I'm satisfied with the, the, the car seat forward version rather than the car seat back version. Like I'm just happy with that. I wanna challenge you on that because you're made in the image of a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect fellowship with one another from eternity past and will be into eternity future, needing no one. God didn't create human beings because he was lonely. He was perfectly satisfied within his own being. And if that's the image of the, if we're made in the image of that one, what does that mean? We're made for relationship. At the very least, I mean, one of the simplest things it means is we are made for relationship. And so I have to think that if you find yourself satisfied, if I find myself satisfied with the level of relationship that's pretty shallow with other believers, and I don't find this kind of picture of the kind of relationships available to us, if I don't find it compelling, I have to wonder if it's not because we haven't distracted ourselves so greatly that we've lost our taste for the very thing we were made for. And I know I'm theologically right. You were made for this kind of relationship. You were. It's not a question of like, well, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. You were. You were made for it. You have to take up the gospel ambition. You have to take up gospel priorities to have it, but you were made for it. And if you're not compelled to want that kind of relationship, I don't care if you're introverted or extroverted. Introverts, I'm not saying you have to have this kind of relationship with 800 people. Maybe two. But you were made for this kind of relationship. And if you don't find yourself compelled, I, just, I found myself wondering if it's not because we're spending too much time entertaining ourselves in front of a screen in isolated ways where we just kind of satisfy whatever desire we have in isolation. And as we do that, do you know that one of the things it does is it dulls, it dampens your desire for the things that really matter. It dampens your desire for the things that really matter. So I would say, young men, get off the video games. Get off of them or limit, limit them. Limit the amount of time you spend in isolated pursuits, whatever it may be. The more you spend your time and energy that way, the, the more I can't help but think that it will dampen your true need and desire. And I, I want you to have more. Car seat forward, car seat back. You get better sleep that way. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is convicting. <laughs> Help us to revolve our relationships here in this church, among this people. Help us to revolve them around gospel priorities so that we would experience the depth of relationship that you have for us, so that you'd be glorified. That's our desire, be glorified. And you're glorified when your people have these kinds of relationships where we say, I, I yearn for you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Thank you for putting this, these words in your holy word. Thank you for putting them there for us. Now receive our praises. You're worthy. Our right response to hearing your word now is to, just to declare your worth. Fill our hearts up. Lord, I pray for my, my church family. Now receive our praises. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing.